Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Sun is setting here in Northern California. Just finished my daily walk, which is about 30 to 35 minutes on the days where we aren't at my wife Chabrell's physical therapy sessions. We're also get a little workout in. So yeah, trying to pick up the steps before the IndyCar season launches here. Woo, it is scary to think that I am a little bit less than a week and a half away from getting on a plane and flying to good old Flo Rida. Head into uh, the Tampa airport and then over the little bridge to St. Petersburg where we get to play IndyCar for a couple of days, open the season. Don't go home. No, that that's what a silly person would do. Stay there in Florida. Monday morning, late morning, after St. Pete is done and dusted, drive, what, about two hours or so south, southwest to Sebring International Raceway. And it is genuinely a delightful drive. Many years ago, friend of the show, old friend Mike Hole, Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing told me about a particular route to follow. And yeah, that drive from the greater Tampa area down to Sebring, instead of the way that I used to do it, which was drive basically west about, I don't know how far, but drive a bit west and then just go straight down the normal route. Yeah, this is actually way more beautiful. Lots of orchards filled with oranges and scenic stuff, and it's just a delight. So Heading straight to Searing from St. Pete. Do that, what, late Monday through Saturday night. Catch a flight home Sunday morning. Get in whatever time that is, I think Sunday afternoon. And then home for a couple days. And then down to Palm Springs for the thermal all-star million dollar, whatever you should call it, challenge. So three weekends in a row And then for a number of IndyCar teams right after that, they will be doing their first ever hybrid test. So, yeah, it is a good old busy month of March getting ready to kick off here. So thanks again to all that you do here to help support this show. Really do appreciate you. The great questions that you send in every week. Our pal Jerry Siddharth, who puts them together for us, reports, and I'm looking at it, We have 1,899 words submitted in this episode. Jerry said, in the interest of not making it too long, because we've been doing two a week for the last two weeks, because they have been running long, uh, tried to trim things quite a bit. So I think about 850 words worth of questions. So we'll dive into those in just a moment. Time to say a big thank you to our show partners on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, starting with FAF Technologies. Build-to-Print Composites Manufacturing Company. They're specializing in medium to large-scale automotive, motorsports, and military applications. Visit faftechnologies.com. It's P-F-A-F-F technologies.com to learn more about their services and how they can benefit your business. Next, it's the Justice Brothers, makers of premium additives, lubricants, and cleaners and servicing the automotive and motorsports industries for more than 85 years with victories in all the biggest North American motor races, including the Indianapolis 500, the 24 Hours of Daytona. The Justice Brothers products are truly race-proven. Learn about their vast history and range of offerings 
at justicebrothers.com. If you're fond of awesome motor racing collectibles, including FAF Motorsports McLaren gear and goodies, pay a visit to torontomotorsports.com. And finally, we have a new online merchandise home for the podcast, thepruittstore.com. For all the show stickers, models, racing memorabilia I'm trying to sell and put towards our fun to buy a house is now live and rocking, thepruittstore.com. Thanks again to our show partners, uh, and also to the Prude listener group. I, I often forget to mention, if you want to join them, just look at the description here on the show. Uh, if it takes you, hopefully, to, who knows, Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Podbean is the, the native host for the show. Could be Spotify. I'm hoping all that stuff comes through the way it's supposed to. But instructions on how to join the Prude listener group, which also meets up at a lot of the IndyCar races each year, IMSA as well, and just have a lot of fun together, kind of event friends who are also friends between the show. Um, yeah, check out the description here and please join them. And one last little bit of housekeeping, which I always forget to do. If you are a new or newish listener and are wondering how you submit questions each week, very simple. Either check out my at Marshall Pruitt twitter slash x profile monday somewhere between noon and one on average pacific i'll put out the call for questions look for that and then just reply to it jerry sees that publicly and grabs those and then if you happen to still enjoy your facebook the marshall pruitt podcast facebook page i post the same call for questions at the same time on mondays and just post a comment to that thread for the week and Jerry will grab those as well. I think he does some like ninja stuff at maybe one or two other places I'm not totally sure about to grab questions. But nonetheless, those are the two places that Jerry will look and grab and assemble and cull and order and present to us here. So let's get rolling. Ed Joris. Ed says, notice that the team's testing at Sebring this week. Today, by the way, the first of a two-day test, final preseason test of the year. Says that, Teams were limited to three sets of tires per day. Asks who sets that limit. Is it Firestone? Is it IndyCar? Or is it just the amount of uh, tires that fit into a truck divided by the number of teams in the test? That's pretty standard, Ed. It really is. And it's been that way for a little while. If uh, I'm forgetting an event where more tires were allowed for an open test, uh, a even a all paddock, kind of private test like this it's three sets it's been that way last year for example what was it i think laguna seca monterey we had a test day right before the season finale newly paved and what did teams have to work with three sets of tires so it was very much of a pick and choose when you want to run throughout the day be very smart in looking at the weather and finding what you think is going to be the most representative ambient uh, and whatnot to match when you need to do important things during the race weekend itself, right? Hey, we're going to save a set for what is near qualifying time on Saturday. So we're going to do a bit of strategery and use one of those three sets there. Um, And so on and so forth. But yeah, the three sets is been this way for a little while 
It makes <clears throat> nobody happy within the paddock that I can think of because I believe every single team and just about every driver has complained about it. And to my knowledge, this has been set by Firestone within the annual engine. Uh, engine. <laughs> That'd be interesting. The annual tire lease done with each team. Uh, within that, teams get a uh, predetermined amount of tires per race weekend and then also for X amount of tests throughout the year. So to my knowledge, it has been set by the vendor and the vendor alone. It Todd Hudson says, MP, I know you can't always look at testing numbers as teams are all working on different things, but do you think the lack of a set driver lineup this far is going to cause the Dale Coyne racing team to fall off a bit from where they were last year? Ooh, great question, Todd. Yes, but there's also some bigger items here to consider. And I won't go too far into the weeds on this one, but this would certainly qualify as one of our bigger questions to get into at the beginning of the show. So the cost to run an IndyCar for the season in 2024 is unlike any amount of money teams have had to fork out just about ever since this Lardy W12 twin turbo V6 package debuted in 2012. The costs are higher than ever, at least that I know of. Um, is that just inflation in the U.S.? I mean, that doesn't, doesn't help, but it's the move to hybridization. The costs of all the parts and pieces to do the upgrades and having to lease the units themselves, the hybrid unit, the energy recovery systems, and engine lease prices are up, I believe. Everything's up, Todd. That is something that a decent amount of the teams can handle but not all. And it's the smaller teams that are struggling more than I have seen in a good long while to satisfy that bigger full season budget. So where this comes back to coin, I expect them to have at least two drivers per car this season possibly three in one of them who knows if they could have more in both it's not because dale does a bad job at running his team it's not that dale again i i can't think of anything dale's particularly done wrong it's just the budget that needs to be assembled to run a full season in 2024 is more than most paying drivers are able to afford single-handedly. So that's one of the reasons we're looking at this situation where Jack Harvey testing in that number 18 car today, tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this, Colin Brown should be debuting and testing at least in the number 51 car. If all goes well, which I have to imagine it would 
even though this is Colin's first time in an Indy car, <laughs> just no simulator time, no anything, just right in at the deep end. Um, I think he will impress with all those caveats in place. If he isn't last on Tuesday, I'll be shocked just because he should be dead last due to his vast inexperience in this type of car. Give him a day, though. I would bet he'll do well, and I think he will likely get the nod from Dale Coin Racing to do St. Petersburg. Could he do more than St. Petersburg if all goes well? I think it's possible. We'll come back here to uh, the, the greater point at hand, Todd, but I just wanted to fill in some of the side notes here because, again, they're all related. Believe with the full-season IMSA commitment that he has in LMP2, Collins also racing, I think, full-season in, what, the European Le Mans Series in P2, and then also, I think, in the SRO GT3 Championship. He's silly busy as a gun for hire across three different sports car series. Even so, I believe there's a decent amount of non-conflicting events where, if asked, he would likely climb in and race that number 51. But why would Dale Coyne Racing, with the opening of the championship just a little over a week away, be testing someone who's never driven an IndyCar and who I am fully aware of and know to be a fact, brings zero dollars, right? He might have a super wealthy co-driver and close friend, George Kurtz, owner of CrowdStrike. Doesn't mean George or anyone else is paying for Colin to drive an IndyCar. <clears throat> so why would we have Jack Harvey who's known to be able to find a little bit of money, right? <clears throat> I don't know if I'd fully describe him, describe him as a, quote, paying driver, like we might think of some who pay the full tab to drive a car year after year. But Jack's a friendly guy, knows some people, raise some money, I'm sure, probably not a ton. Colin, for sure, is not somebody who brings money. Why, then, would these two be in cars for Dale Coyne? Well, here we go. It all comes back to that budget being high enough to where, unlike in years past, it's much harder for a Dale Coyne-type team to find one driver with an elevated budget to match what is needed in 2024. There's no specific number on how much higher it is this year. Just tell you the general average, Todd, that I'm getting from teams is about two million bucks more per entry. Again, could be a little less for some. I know it's more for some others because uh, they've told me, but it's a real number. So with that said, the pool of drivers with three quarters, half or three quarters of a budget, Dale would in years past say, let's do it, right? I'll put in some of my own money or I'm sure I can find a co-entrant to help cover that off. That has not happened to my knowledge in any significant way here in 2024. So coming back to this scenario, we're looking at a situation where 
I expect Jack to be in the car at St. Pete. I expect him to be in the car a lot, unless, again, they find someone else to pay a lot of money to do that. Um, coming up here soon and potentially take the seat. Again, I wouldn't pretend to know contractual obligations, but um, this is something to consider because we have someone, to my knowledge, who isn't bringing a ton but is a veteran and who can handle that car for coin and do extremely well for Dale. But I know who I've said before, Nolan Siegel is expected to be in the car at least for the Indy 500. I keep hearing it's a four-race deal. There's 18 total events. If you include the 17 points paying and the non-points thermal event, there's 18 total per car. Couldn't tell you how much Jack's bringing have a idea that Nolan's bringing an okay amount of money, right? Nowhere near from what I know though, would be a full season's budget problem, but Dale's obligated to go racing. Dale loves to go racing. So I understand the scenario. He's saying, let's start the season. Let's get going. Let's get out there, show what we can do. Hopefully whether it's paying drivers or paying sponsors, we'll pick up some more as we go. On the other car, who might be in that throughout the year? I believe Catherine Legg will be doing the ovals in it, Indy 500 for sure. The, the big way to look at this is Catherine, we believe, will be taking some of the races, maybe the ovals, uh, all the ovals. Think Colin's going to be in for, again, at least a season opener, maybe, hopefully, but who knows how many others. I think I've mentioned Benjamin Peterson's name has been one associated with potentially being in the coin team. Is that the 18? Is it the 51? Is it a little bit of both? I have no idea. Uh, I still haven't reached out to him, so that's my fault. Uh, I know, although his name was heavily associated for quite some time, Devlin DeFrancesco, not involved in any way. Who all else is out there? Who might do a couple races here or there? This is the scenario, Todd. I I haven't seen anything like this in a long time where we're going into a year and have one team, not just like one car, and yeah, we think we know most, but we're not sure there might be one or two races to fill in, but legitimately, I couldn't tell you who's going to be in the cars for sure at race one or round two or round three and so on. I think we got the Indy 500 laid out with Nolan and Catherine, but it's tough. And I'm not saying any of this in a happy way. Like, you know, I'm not like, ah, these idiots look. No, it it strikes me as really sad. So that's covering off a little bit about what I discussed last week. Maybe add in a little bit more about coin. But to come back to your point about the team falling off from last year as a result of this, they should. (laughs) It would be a miracle if the coin team maintained their place uh, on the grid where Malukas ended up and where Stingray Rob ended up. I can't think of any way that would happen for a couple of very quick reasons before we move on. The young race engineer whose last name I could never pronounce, Alex Afendioulis, I think, 
who was promoted to become a first-time race engineer last year with young Davey Malukas, and who Davey really liked, and the team thought, hey, this kid's got great potential. He's gone. Uh, one of the kind of team engineering veteran types who used to just be an Indy 500 import. He's now the veteran, and he's on, I think, the 18 car. I don't know who will be engineering the 51 car. Maybe they've hired that person. They didn't have that person locked in when I asked last Friday. Um, that means you do not have a long off season of dedicated deep engineering R and D involvement because you haven't had a fully built out humming and rocking and rolling engineering department. You also then don't have drivers and engineers who know each other much realize for many they're working for the first time with their race engineer just now at the sebring test but even so the like hi <laughs> what's your name <laughs> like who are you like you know I, the engineer might be saying that to the driver too <clears throat> all the little getting to know each other things that happen during an off season going to lunch going to dinner going to breakfast looking through data and video from last year and hey, here's the setup thing we did here, and you know, are there things you prefer in the handling of a car, and so on. I mean, a lot of this stuff is having to be made up basically now or within the last couple of weeks, Todd, for one car, and there's zero, none of what I just mentioned having taken place on the other. So just to close here, There's almost no year-to-year carryover on the engineering side, the top-tier engineering side. There's 0% carryover on the driving side. The late timing of this happening, being right before we head to the opening race, conspires against great success as well. So, if the coin team is higher than last place, the two slowest cars in the field at St. Petersburg, go over and give them high fives and candy and potato chips and French fries and hot dogs and Pepsi or Coke or beers, whatever it is that you consider to be celebratory treats. Bring them to them because they will be doing something phenomenal to deliver way higher than they should be able to do. So that's not me doubting them or otherwise. It's saying history says everything I mentioned, they should be welded to the bottom two spots, pretty much every practice session qualifying most of the race. Although the team and Dale in particular is really good at strategy calls, but, if they're anything other than that, we will celebrate them like you wouldn't believe. If you're looking for an underdog team this year, that's really the one that you're probably going to need to focus on because there's no one even close at all. Thankful for Dale, his ongoing, true love of IndyCar racing and investment. Um, I wish things 
worked out better year to year unplugging that big budget from the Malukas family and the amount of money that Stingray was able to bring unplugging all those things certainly was not good some other plays here of turning down some drivers when they were offering more money than they're able to closer to the start of the season maybe a bit of a strategery backfire but nonetheless um I can think of some other team owners throughout history who would just pull the plug. And the fact that Dale hasn't and won't, truly something to celebrate. All right, we're going to mash the throttle a little bit here, kicking off our friend Kevin DeVries says, are you aware of any safety lessons learned, borrowed, or improved upon from other hybrid series? I think the AMR safety team already has a leg up but the potential hazards with a damaged high-voltage electrical system must add to a new and significant challenge for their job. Kev is also kind enough to say, hope things continue to be well for you, your warrior wife, and the feed lines. Thanks, Kev. Uh, had both Rocky and Rosie in here to start the show. Uh, Rosie ran Rocky off, as she often does, uh, despite being smaller and two years younger, but she is the boss of us. And, uh, yeah, my wife's doing well. Got a uh, important, super busy week this week, uh, but good one, too. We're hoping to uh, get some good news back from uh, our oncologist here in a couple days uh, after we make a trip. Uh, so, anyways, let's get rolling on your question. So, not a super high-voltage system. Yeah, uh, that's one of the coolish things about this supercapacitor ESS energy storage system. That is indeed what we got going on here. So to my knowledge, there's no like safe, not safe uh, light on the car. Like we have an IMSA, right? That red or green go, no go uh, system is powered down discharged and whatnot or if it's a scary stay away and turns red don't believe i haven't seen anything to that effect on the uh the hybrid test cars nor do i know of that actually being something that's going to get implemented um i don't think it's too much of a concern here just based on the spec and the design of the system now if we were to have a big chassis splitting crash we don't get those very often thankfully but if we were and we were to break the transmission and bell housing away from the engine and snap the car there and expose the energy recovery system that to me would very well be a situation where i'm guessing indycar would say hey uh, special handling, deal with the driver, stay away from that part of the car. Again, it being low voltage, it's not really supposed to be much of a thing, but it still would pack a little bit of a wallop uh, if you got zapped. But standard crashes, I just don't think uh, it's really a big concern because when I've asked, that's what I've been told. Uh, cooking in the dark. <laughs> Not sure if that's a tweeter or where uh, an X or a what, but that's a great handle. It's MP sending you much love heading into another busy racing season. Well, cooking in the dark, 
thank you. I am feeling the love, and it isn't necessarily cooking in the dark, but uh, at the instruction of my dear wife, we started watching The Bear yesterday. And, uh, yeah, really good culinary, crazy, manic, whatever type show. But, yeah, boy, that's good. So uh, cooking, yes, a topic we've been at least enjoying on our television. Uh, so as I'm wondering about the series partnership with Shell and their racing fuels, does this partnership have a lifespan? And if so, for how long? And thanks. Does have a lifespan. This was brand new in 2023. I believe the previous vendor was Speedway. Um, so yeah, the Shell. This is a relationship that is obviously a big and important one to Roger Penske, Team Penske. Certainly through the Shell slash Pennzoil sponsorship we've seen both in IndyCar, uh, but especially in NASCAR as well for many years. So I don't recall the term of the deal or if that was even mentioned. That tends not to be a Penske thing. You'll get multi-year deal. You rarely will get a three-year, four or five if they did spell it out, then to me that would be a cool rarity. But everything I can think of that Penske does like this is going to be a multi-year with options to do more years upon that. So would say knowing that Shell slash Pennzoil, very close to Penske, and for many years we would have to assume that Barring some sort of radical change, uh, we would see this continue as IndyCar's official fuel supplier, and that being the new fully renewable fuel that came into play, 100% renewable fuel in 2023. Uh, Ole O'Leary says, MP, do you think this will be Graham Rahal's final season? And if so, what do you think will constitute a good final year for him? I don't. Why do I not? Well, I spoke with the lad about two hours ago. He just landed in, I don't know, I actually didn't ask, but he landed somewhere in an airport in Florida and was heading down to Sebring. We're talking about uh, Delara DW12 and future chassis and whatever else. And he spoke in a way that, made me believe without a doubt and we weren't on the topic of retirement so again there there was no real angle to approach here that way just talking about the current chassis and thoughts about future chassis and when and blah 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 and he spoke very clearly about wanting to drive another chassis before he retires indycar chassis so he wouldn't do that uh, unless he planned on being around for a while, because if he retires at the end of the year, for sure, <laughs> he will not be uh, getting a chance to race a new and different uh, Delara chassis, because there's nothing coming to replace the DW12 in 2025. Granted, Delara will make more new DW12s as people order them, but in terms of actual fresh a DW 26 or whatever year, not aware of that being in the pipeline yet. So for Graham to do what he says he really wants to do, that would mean he would need to stick around. 
John Wire. So I'm wondering, the same chassis, almost equal engines, and limited practice sessions besides dampers. How are the bigger teams trying to gain an edge over the others? Also says nice words about the family here. Um, the same way, John, they do in every other racing series. Uh, they try and figure out ways to make the car perform better aerodynamically and through suspension and through electronics to corner better, faster, more consistently, cut through the air, cleaner, smoother, etc. Um, dampers might be the one big open area for teams to do their own development on. And yes, suspension is the same from car to car and the wings are the same. But if you think about all the combinations, if you think of an Indy car like a combination lock that has a million different possible solutions to that lock, well, what do teams do year after year? No one really comes up with the perfect combination to fully unlock that lock. They might get Again, I don't know how many numbers it would be on the lock, but the bigger and better teams that spend more money and have smarter people and can invest more, well, they nail most of the numbers. On occasion, they get all the numbers, but never across the entire season at every single race. Think about all the things. Could be ride height. Could be suspension geometry. Could be a wing angle. Could be a camber setting could be the throttle map in how the engine responds could be could be could be could be there's so many things even though we've had this dw12 chassis forever and there's so little left to be found that would be an improvement but as long as this car is in existence and competition there will be ways to find little granular improvements not just with the dampers, but with how the rest of the car is tuned and treated. So that's what happens. Big teams, small teams, you name it. Sometimes it's the hiring of somebody who's really smart and comes from another team and brings their ideas. Sometimes it's a kid fresh out of college physics or math or whatever major some sort of crazy engineering brain and they ask some questions and go huh i see we're trying to solve this problem this way you guys ever thought about doing it that way and all the veterans look around and go uh no where have you been <laughs> and they go, okay cool let's try that um sometimes it's bringing in somebody from a different high level series who again might be have higher level knowledge to rain down or might just be coming from a series or go, Hey, the cars are different, but you know, uh, therefore we've had to approach some of these things in a, uh, in a different manner. And so, yeah, I get your point. Cars been around forever. How do folks find an advantage? You know, even so there's still tenths of a second separating teams with the same car basically the same engine or so um tires and so on 
Keep in mind, there's also on top of the potential for excellence I just mentioned, <laughs> keep in mind that, and I'm raising my hand as living proof, not every IndyCar crew member, manager, engineer, whatever, falls into the truly excellent category. Uh, I was very good uh, at times. More often than not, I was, I was good, yeah, decent, good, not great. Um, you know, that has an influence as well. So maybe you aren't finding the best. Maybe you aren't making the best choices. The driver tells you, ah, oh, the car's doing this. And in your mind, you're like, well, there's three different changes I could make to solve that. Of those three, not all of them are going to be great. Probably one of them is going to be wrong. It's possible to make the wrong decision. Go slower. Have that affect the rest of your weekend. Qualify poorly. Run towards the back of the field. Everyone's really grumpy. Why? Well, driver said the car was doing a thing. I thought of a couple ways to fix it. Chose the wrong way. Domino effect. Rest of the weekend was bad. And who knows? Maybe that keeps going. So we think about cars because that's the tool we have to use in our sport instead of a football or a tennis racket and whatever else. But there's lots you can do still with that same spec thing that has so many different ways to unlock its potential to try and make an improvement. And then you also throw in the fact that human beings can either make it lots better or not particularly remarkable or bad that's where you get the real fun uh steve bonnick how you doing steve and to you and your daughter and family uh mp random question on how teams track angles for things like the hashtag front nose say the replacement during a race as a race goes on and there are several wing changes how do they keep track is it old school via paper software eyeball or a combo platter would say there's someone for sure tracking the quantifiable adjustments. And in my day, might've been a little bit of both paper and software, right? Was not uncommon back then to have a paper lap chart, right? Um, and not just lap during a race, but during a session, right? How many laps you've completed and you might go up 0.03 PSI on the right front tire, and you mark down 0.3 RF uh, PSI. Um, it's a wing adjustment. Again, depending on whether you're talking super speedway with a single adjuster in the middle or road course slash street course or short oval where you've got uh, a different way of doing that side by side on the, uh, the upper element there. Um, you would absolutely be giving instructions to the crew. Okay. Plus one minus two, whatever it might be. Um, and that's turns, not full rotations, right? Um, give those instructions, make that note on your spreadsheet, whatever it is that you might be using. Also have that person confirm back to you that they did that, right? especially if we're talking about a pit stop and a fast pit stop, right? Change that left front tire and then reach over and make two turns to that adjuster, right? Make sure that with that person, that those two turns were made and hopefully in the right direction. So yeah, that 
tends to be the way things get done. Uh, the only thing that is still largely handwritten, you'll see this with a lot of the uh, tire technicians, is they'll have their tire pressure gauge, and they will have made or bought in some instances, but often make a uh, little notepad holding platform on top of it or in whichever placement they prefer on it. So as they are taking tire pressure readings right down by hand on that piece of paper, Firestone does that as well. And it's a carbon copy. I don't remember if it's two or three sheets uh, per, but uh, we'll do that too, just because you're doing things very quickly and could that change in the future? Who knows? Maybe it's changed already and some teams have, and I've just missed like small little tablets and a strap on their arm where they could tap and enter that in quickly. Uh, but by and large for things like that, Steve, just because you're kneeling down, taking the pressure, writing it down, popping up and doing the next, uh, next tire seconds later, got a pen in hand, writing it down uh, on that little notepad, atta often attached, not always, but often attached the tire pressure gauge and that way you're not having to remember anything you have it written down you show the engineer the assistant engineer whomever is asking for it maybe even the driver uh, and then they will enter that but keep those slips right whether it's firestone that does that firestone might come by and do uh temperatures right the carcass there um, that's really important teams can do will do that as well whatever the uh the slip of information might be um, those things get kept, handed off as necessary to a race engineer or chief mechanic and cataloged for sure. I still have some. <laughs> I recently found some from, I don't know, 25 years ago. Um, so yeah, uh, they kind of hang around forever. Um, all right, we're going to keep mashing the throttle here. And we're going to go to our pal Cord Johnson who says, I've noticed that after the land sat with no activity for the last year or so, Finally moving dirt at the new Andretti shop facility in Fishers, Indiana. Says with them struggling to get into Formula One, are they still planning on finishing that shop build? And McLaren moving into the old Andretti shop. I haven't asked and haven't gotten this, I don't know, would have been 7.30 p.m. on a Monday. Uh, wouldn't have probably gotten an answer if I was able to reach out in time, Corey, so apologies there, but... Here's maybe a backwards answer. Aero McLaren slash McLaren, <laughs> Zach Brown, bought the shop Andretti Global is currently in. That's known. The part that might also be known, Zach's told me this because I've asked once or twice and he's been firm about it. They're moving in. <laughs> okay. January or January 1st, or I don't know if they've negotiated anything earlier, but on January 1st, Aero McLaren is moving into the larger Andretti global facility that currently exists that they've been in for quite some time. Um, they have a bunch of renovations planned. So when I say moving in, again, I don't know if and how much they will actually move in. Just another question to ask Zach, but I know that they plan on knocking down some serious walls and doing a lot of 
changes to meet their specs and preferences uh, right away. No delays. Uh, and, you know, my, keep in mind that Michael and Zach are good friends. Uh, but Zach was cracking me up a little bit saying, hey, I love Michael. He's my guy. But, like, look, we bought it. The agreement says we're moving in. Um, if they need to move somewhere else temporarily, you know, uh, that's that's all, that's them, not me. I know where we're going to be. That's where we're going to be at the start of 2025, getting to work on what we're doing there. So my guess is, yes, uh, this is definitely something that Andretti would want to be doing, um, moving dirt and getting at least the functional shop built out in time for the team to move into that by the end of the year. If some of the other bigger, more impressive things and gift shop and viewing areas, again, all the non-competition bells and whistles, if those things get done, don't get done by the end of the year, I don't think that would uh, be the worst thing. But yeah, uh, they were meant to be well down the road on getting this uh, absolutely done in time. Uh, Grammar Capitalists. New questionnaire, I believe, says, what is the material difference between dirty air in the draft or slipstream? Uh, or is it in the windscreen of the beholder? <laughs> there we go. I've watched hundreds of races. Always wondered if they're different. These are truly independent phenomenons or just different labels depending on desirability. Well, I'd say the first answer is it depends on what you're watching. So if we're thinking about NASCAR, probably hear the first two, dirty air in the draft. I don't know if you hear slipstream so much. Uh, IndyCar, for sure, you probably hear all three, depending on the commentator or who's on pit lane as a reporter. Dirty air, I tend to think of as turbulence. You're running in dirty air, inefficient air, something that is hampering your ability to move forward and make a pass. That would be different than being in the draft, which is being in the advantageous part of a wake behind a car tends to be more than just one. I mean, it is obviously possible to have a two-car draft, but uh, I tend to think of three, four, or five as really being considered, hey, those are cars in the draft. And Slipstream is effectively the same thing. Um, the draft, slightly different competition angles that I see here at least if you're running in dirty air tend to think of that as the front of the trailing car just talking indie car here being bounced around moved around by that turbulent air coming off of the car at a spot where i should say in a distance where maybe slightly problematic or if they're not fully tucked in behind them so instead of being kind of in that little bubble uh where the air is being tossed over the car the trailing car 
Instead, you're getting, for whatever reason, some turbulent air, dirty air hitting that trailing car. Maybe that car is not fully lined up with it. Maybe it's at a distance uh, behind it where instead of really being in that kind of advantageous bubble, the draft, slipstreaming just slightly far enough away to where the air is coming back down and hitting the front of that trailing car in a way that is just not aerodynamically advantageous. Uh, The draft, again, for sure, that is an act, right? Hey, in theory, multiple cars trying to line up and run together, whether it's to catch up to those in front, get away from those behind, or just those in a highly competitive set. It might be the leader of the race and a couple of cars following the leader, and they're drafting one another and passing one another, trying to improve position. Slipstream, I think of that a little bit more of here, folks just truly trying to stay in line behind whatever leading car it might be to conserve fuel and be as aerodynamically efficient as possible for whatever reason. Now, you'll hear that just to close. Hey, person was slipstreaming behind them and pulled out and passed them and won the race. Say the same thing about a riding in the draft, pulled out, passed them, won the race. So those two, which often use in somewhat different manners, still add up to effectively the same thing. So, yeah, really does depend what you're watching and who's talking to you and where they come from because some of these that you've mentioned and others uh, definitely fall into more preference or colloquialism being either regional or based on the type of series they're coming from uh, than anything else. Uh, Chris McCary, Marshall, during your reporting on the Honda IndyCar issues a couple of months ago, did you get any insight, explicit or otherwise, into potential NASCAR interests, uh, as has been suggested lately? Do you see a world in which Honda's competing in both series? Um, yeah, definitely got some insights. Um, no, you probably read or picked up in what we wrote a couple months ago with Honda. Uh, Chuck Shifsky providing those quotes, him mentioning that, you know, they had options certainly after 26 and they could, uh, of the variety of options leave and go to NASCAR. He would not have mentioned that series specifically if there was not a reason, right? He could have said NHRA or which is the thing it's, it's really the thing to pick up on. Usually in those scenarios, when you have a senior person from a manufacturer or wherever else, they're talking about items that they know are big and (laughs) potentially controversial to some. It's pretty common, Chris, for a lack of specifics to be offered. What you would have expected is... We have a lot of options in front of us. We could stay in IndyCar beyond our current contract. We could decide to stop racing in IndyCar altogether, or we could decide to take the money and go to another racing series, or we could invest it in something that has nothing to do with racing whatsoever. 
that would have been totally on the nose and expected. It's when you have highly intelligent person and Chuck is, I love Chuck. Um, when you have someone like a Chuck answer the questions as he did and specifically cite a racing series or multiple racing series. He also mentioned formula one. We decided to take our IndyCar budget and apply that to Honda's major factory F1 effort here with this new engine formula. It's just a couple years down the road. Um, anytime you name specifics, someone like a Chuck, uh, your ear should perk up and go, Ooh, that wasn't by accident. Doesn't mean they're doing anything. He said they have potential to do, but instead of giving generalisms, which is the go-to move, he told you and told us NASCAR is a thing. Not a surprise that there was a story that came out a couple weeks ago about Honda looking at NASCAR. They've looked at it before. This is not the first time. I do apologize. I'm not remembering the exact year. Was it the late 2000s? Um, There's been at least one, maybe two, but at least one Honda taking a hard look at NASCAR type story that precedes this. So I'm not saying that to diminish this, just saying it's not a brand new idea someone had and just decided to think about. It's been around for a while with American Honda. So with all that said, um, I have a list. (laughs) I wish I could tell you what's on it. Um, and I'm not reading this to tease. I'm just being honest. Um, I've got six items on it right now that are like, make my eyes cross of things that I know are in the works could happen or being discussed, uh, where it's, and again, this isn't just IndyCar apologize. And it was an IndyCar show, but, uh, across three different racing series and it's like oh wow (laughs) there's some some pretty big showstopper potential here for some things i would say for anybody who's followed the honda thing a little bit however many years past and seen it pop up here um keep following uh let's see oh uh, to close here do i see a world in which honda is competing in both series Maybe I have a, I would feel super confident in saying that Honda will be in one guaranteed for sure. No question. The other one, maybe, uh, Austin Taylor Marshall, hypothetically in a fantasy world, you find out NASCAR has bought IndyCar. What would your thoughts be if such a thing were to happen? Uh, I'd be shocked. I'd be concerned if or unless NASCAR saw IndyCar as a property to acquire and 
want to make it a super bigger, more butt kicking series than it is. And that's just where the, the concern comes from. And I'm not saying this like NASCAR is some kind of bad organization or evil empire, not saying that at all. What I'm saying though, is North America has two big and longstanding rivals at the top of the motor racing food chain. IndyCar was the top dog here for most of the last century. That changed mid-90s where NASCAR started to take over and become our number one most popular series. It has not relinquished that in this new century. It remains vastly more popular than IndyCar right now, right? It's not like IndyCar is getting super close in drafting or streamlining or in dirty air behind it. It's not even on the same lap, unfortunately. All that said, they're rivals for sponsors, people who own teams, for manufacturers. I realize Chevrolet is there, Honda. Again, if you're a Honda fan and you like NASCAR, you're probably going to be really happy here in the future. Um, but ultimately, IndyCar is a rival. And if NASCAR were to somehow buy it and there weren't some sort of provision in that clause that says the series can never be shuttered and must be maintained for as long as, and operating and, and whatnot uh, as is uh, at minimum, for as long as NASCAR exists, um, I'd be concerned that it would get shut down, maybe except for the Indy 500, because that's what any smart business would do if you can buy your rival, even if it's a distant rival. Um, it's just smart business. Start a second NASCAR 2, <laughs> NASCAR Cup 2, and bring in all the IndyCar team owner again. I don't know. Again, kind of pulling this stuff out of my backside, Austin. But unless there was a desire within NASCAR to have a open wheel support series, which would be really strange, since these are the people who created the concept of stock car oval racing. <laughs> I can't think of any way, brother, where buying IndyCar is a thing that would be done that benefits NASCAR in any way other than shutting it down. Uh, Jaime Macias. Uh, Jaime, you say, oh boy. Yeah, we're getting a little late in the show, Jaime. So uh, you're asking about if IndyCar owners had accepted Tony George's proposal back in the day, where would CART be? Basically preventing the split. Um, wow. Wow. We would be... The current state of IndyCar, I think, would be phenomenal. Part, uh, not, it wasn't strictly this, but part of the reason that NASCAR uh, accelerated ahead of IndyCar in the mid to late 90s is IndyCar decided to go to war with itself and broke off factions and... There were definite winners and losers down the road. But more importantly, IndyCar diluted itself. Cart was still really strong and popular, 
um, after the split, but it still took a knee and uh, it certainly lifted off the throttle there and NASCAR definitely went by. So minus that and still having unity and really fast and amazing cars at the Indy 500 um, from 96 onwards. Yeah. Um, we might still be talking about IndyCar being the most popular series in the country. Uh, Riley Stricker, we're getting down to the last couple here. Riley says, I don't have sources, but I remember hearing a stat once that most viewers in Indy 500 don't know that IndyCar has 16 other races. TV audience, race attendance, I think it shows this to be true. Is that a failure of the series, the viewer? Is Indy 500 just that much more exciting? I don't know the stat. Like, okay, I can cite this as being X amount percent truthy. But yes, this is still a thing. Very much a thing. Educating folks that IndyCar isn't just the Indy 500. Um, It's also a cultural thing, Riley. It's also a generational thing. So if you live in the Midwest, even if you're five years old, you've probably heard of the Indy 500. So again, Midwestern culture in particular, it's a big deal. Has been forever, probably will be for a lot longer. If you live out on the coasts, uh, I can guarantee you it's not a thing. You have to learn about it through non kind of generational regional ways just also keep in mind that the indy 500 has been a thing where grandma and grandpa and their grandparents and whatever sons and daughters and whatnot have been going for a long time the stories about folks who've sat in the same seats since you name it back when um it's pretty common so you just understand that the indy 500 itself has been the big thing that for those who know about indycar racing associate it with that race specifically it's not a surprise uh that when you tell folks you're going to alabama for an indycar race they might first go what is indycar and uh indy indianapolis that's not an alabama what are you doing um yeah spent some time on the phone today with my old friend randy bernard former indycar president i don't remember maybe his title was ceo but whatever um yeah one of the topics we discussed was about reality series and how back when he created indycar entertainment was an office in la i think santa monica santa monica kind of greater L.A. Hollywood-ish type location. Um, They had a pretty decent reality show that they were trying to develop and uh, mentioned that, obviously, he got fired. The the IndyCar Entertainment office out on the West Coast um, survived a little bit longer but was eventually shut down as well. Uh, just said, you know, uh, I really, I really get a little bit sad when I see the popularity of drive to survive because like 
five, six, seven, eight years before that came out, we had effectively the same thing ready to go. And yeah, with his ouster and then the eventual shuttering of that, it never went anywhere. But yeah, I just mentioned that because for those of us who've been saying, hey, we need something like Drive to Survive, and hey, okay, we got 100 days to Indy, but unfortunately it had a tiny impact. Um, the idea of many years ago, a decade ago, uh, if not a little bit more, Randy and company having cars, an IndyCar version of Drive to Survive effectively ready uh, to try and bring to life with a major streamer. Uh, boy, I wonder, Riley, what if that had come to fruition, what that could have done to help raise IndyCar's profile over the last decade so that folks would know it ain't just the 500, y'all. Uh, Andrew Brown, penultimate questionnaire. Marshall, from a photographer's point of view, which track in the IndyCar schedule is the best for taking photos without high catch fencing getting in the way? That would be the Lord's motor racing circuit also known as road america <laughs> yeah it's awesome andrew and i'm not saying there aren't some tall fences here or there but i f- i feel confident in saying i see more fans slash amateur photographers with their gear with monopods um, if not a little lightweight collapsible step stool they bring with them, uh, clip onto their backpack or whatever it is, uh, in and around good old Elkhart Lake than I do any other track. Um, and I've gone around and shot at many areas where big old catch fence, big old, whatever is not really in your way. Done that. Went shooting a couple years ago with, uh, Dalton Kellett. Uh, and he had a good old time there and gone to some other vantage points with uh, some friends just to show them around the track and you can have a great old time there so that to me is a clear number one if i'm forgetting another track i apologize but yeah go there please go there brother you uh you will not be disappointed and if you are going let me know um if I have a golf cart, uh, I'll happily take you around and show you a couple spots during a session. All right, we're going to close the show with our friend Jordan Darwin, sweetheart, who always says, MP, continued prayers for you and your wife. Thank you, brother. Uh, it says, do you think all teams have at least started saving towards their estimated need to cover the cost of their initial chassis buy of the next generation IndyCar Dallara? Uh, no, uh, have not. No savings. Any monies? put towards this one not the future one that doesn't even know when it's going to happen um says what is the latest on when the next delaro hit the track well uh part of me believes i realize that there's a brand new uh the walking dead show with um yeah uh two of the main stars from it i partially believe uh there will be maybe another one with michonne and rick uh where they're racing around zombies in the first ever walking dead zombie indie car chassis the unkillable delara dw12 i'm granted i realize 
If it had a brain, you could stab it and kill it. But still, um, it is the zombie indie car. It won't die. It'll never go away. So on the topic of, hey, when will the next one hit the track? Never. This one will never die. Uh, it's like reboots of the Jason horror movies or the whatever, where it's like, okay, I swear in the last one, you lit him on fire. You ran him over with a train. You put him into a, uh, a food compact. You sliced him and diced him. You turned his bones to powder. You fed him to pigs. You then watched the pigs go poop, lit that on fire, blew it up, buried it, shot it into space. And there'll be another Jason movie about two years later where somehow (laughs) the guy who does not have a single remnant of his physical body left is back and coming after you. That to me is the DW 12. So it'll never happen. Uh, he closes by saying, hashtag me personally, major rollouts are easy to keep up with unless they keep getting pushed back too many times. L O L. Um, I'm with you. Uh, I'm, I'm super with you. Uh, y'all, there's some other great questions here. Jordan, you got another one about uprights and such. And, you know, depending on this week, uh, I might come back and grab some of these other questions. Just sharing, though, that this is going to be a crazy busy week hopefully all nothing but positive but between the things my wife and i have in terms of appointments plus i'm not kidding probably 20 to twenty-five thousand words worth of content i need to generate between now and when i get on a plane for saint pete um we'll play it by ear but thank you all for everything you sent in hopefully this episode being a little bit shorter Uh, Well, I guess technically it's maybe a little bit longer, but instead of it being an hour and 45 or whatever, we'll get it done here in a little bit more reasonable amount of time. Thanks once again to Faf Technologies. Check out faftechnologies.com, please. Also, our dear pals, the Justice Brothers, the justicebrothers.com, and then the fine, fine Canadian folks, just like Faf, at torontomotorsports.com. I'm Marshall Pruitt. Thanks again to Jerry Siddoth for all of his efforts here. For the great questions you sent in, I'll speak to y'all here very soon.